Tonight we continue our study of the great epistle of Colossians, where we are ready to look at chapter 3, verses 5 through 11 tonight. The Apostle Paul, of course, writing this epistle that exalts the Christ, and as he exalts the Christ, he thus counters the error that threatened the Colossian church, as we've talked about it. That error, the Colossian heresy, as it is commonly called, was a mixture of paganism and Gnosticism. That is the idea from the Gnostics that they had a special knowledge, special insight into the spiritual. And then Judaism was also a factor because obviously from what we've already studied in the earlier chapters of the epistle, Paul dealt with the Judaistic influence and admonished these Christians at Colossae because they were in Christ and under the new covenant that they were not to be subject to the ordinances that were a part of the law of Moses, including specifically the Sabbaths, he mentions, which would, of course, include the Sabbath day. And then when we came to chapter 3, you remember that that chapter began with the admonition from the Apostle Paul, if then, that is the idea of since, since then you were raised with Christ, and that refers, of course, to the baptism that they had undergone, going back to Colossians 2, 11 through uh, 13, buried with him in baptism, wherein you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God, and so on. That same allusion that he makes in his Roman epistle in Romans 6, uh, 3 and 4, do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ, uh, put on Christ? And of course, as we're baptized into Christ, then we're raised with Christ. And that's the allusion in chapter 3, verse 1. If then you were raised with Christ... Where should your focus be? Seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Those are the verses we studied last time. Then in verse 5, we have a therefore. And as we always say, when you see that word therefore, you need to see what it's there for. And what it is there for is to remind us of the verses we have just read, the verses he had, had written. In other words, the admonition, therefore, put to death, put to death your members which are on the earth, about which we'll speak more in just a moment, they therefore takes us back to the three reasons that this change of life should take place and the reasons they should put to death the sins of the past. What are those three reasons? Back to verse 3, for you died. You died to sin in baptism. You died to the desire to sin in repentance when you repented of your sins. He reminds these Colossians, you've died to sin. They died to sin in terms of their desire to sin, as we've talked about in our Roman study on Wednesday night. They died to the desire to sin in repentance. They were then buried in baptism where they actually died to the guilt of sin because it was in that watery burial that they reached the blood of Christ. The only place where you can reach the blood of Christ is in that burial in baptism. You died, you died to sin in that process. Second reason for the therefore, your life is hidden with Christ in God. You're under a new life with a new master, 
with new allegiances total. And here's the third reason for the therefore. And you also will appear with him in glory. There is the blessed hope that every child of God has tonight, is the hope of appearing with him in glory. Now because of these three things he has just written, he then says, therefore, because you died to sin in baptism, because your life is now hidden with Christ in God, because you have the hope of one day seeing him as he is, 1 John 3 beginning with verse 1, a cross-reference we looked at earlier, because you have that hope of seeing him as he is and appearing with him in glory and living with him throughout eternity in that glorious existence of heaven about which we have just sung, because you have that hope, therefore, please make sure that you don't lose that hope by failing to do what verse 5 begins to admonish every child of God to do. What is it? Put on the back burner, put in a secondary position. No, put to death. Put to death. That's the New King James. The King James says mortify, but the idea is literally put to death. Put to death what? Your members which are on the earth. What members? Well, here he uses a figure where he puts the members of the fleshly body for the sins that those members are guilty of, of committing. As we've mentioned before, the body is used to commit sin. But here he just simply uses the figure where the members are put for the sins that the members of the body are involved in committing. Obviously, the body is involved. But here he's talking about putting to death the sins that once characterized the lives of many to whom he is writing here. Put to death those members, those sins in other words. What are they? He begins with fornication. Fornication, the word porneia, uh, the word no doubt obviously from which we get the word pornography, but pornography would not be involved, if I understand the word correctly, in the meaning literally of fornication, though pornography is a form of the Greek word uh, from which uh, immorality, of course, uh, comes. And we'll talk more about what pornography would apply to in this list in just a moment. But fornication is illicit sexual intercourse. It is illicit sexual intercourse of any kind, which would include not only man and woman, but man and man. We mentioned uh, in class, and we mentioned on uh, Good News Today in a program we taped last Wednesday night that will be uh, airing in the future, the Queen James Bible that uh, is now, has now been produced. And the Queen James Bible, not the King James, but yes, and this is real. I didn't make this up. I wish I could, and if I could, I wouldn't talk about it because I wouldn't make something like that up anyway. But it is a reality. The Queen James Bible is a translation of the Bible that is now in existence. And it takes eight passages that clearly refer to homosexuality and reinterprets those passages to put homosexuality in a favorable light. Is that my assessment of what it does? No, that's what they will tell you that it does. That's what the sheet, information sheet I had from which I worked in doing the TV program said they had done. They didn't make any bones about it. We have taken the eight verses and we have given them the interpretation, in effect, that they think they should have, an interpretation 
that sugarcoats, if not completely eliminates, the sin of homosexuality altogether. And they are calling this book the Queen James Bible. And that, that's horrific to think about. But the word fornication is a word that includes the practice of homosexuality because porneia is illicit sexual intercourse, period, of any kind. There's no question about the meaning of fornication as it is used in Scripture. But also, you have, after you have the word uncleanness, which is moral impurity of every other uh, kind that would be uh, involved, and certainly that would include uh, viewing pornography and being involved in any kind of moral impurity, uh, even short of uh, illicit sexual intercourse, as the word fornication encompasses that practice, then you have uncleanness, which would be all kinds of moral Im impurities that we are to uh, avoid completely in our lives. Then you have the word passion, passion uh, in the New King James, inordinate affection, uh, as the King James translates it, and uh, the word itself, according to some, clearly can be traced to a word in the original that would have to include uh, homosexuality. But we obviously know that that is included in the meaning of fornication. It would certainly be included in uh, moral impurity, uh, uncleanness without question, and also passion. And I haven't seen the Queen James Bible in terms of what they do with every verse, though they did have some examples of what they had done with, with some uh, passages. But what they have done, in effect, to try to soften the idea of homosexuality is to make it a kind of a rape kind of situation rather than just simply a, what they would call a normal relationship, uh, an abusive kind of situation involving homosexuality rather than a natural, uh, willing relationship, if I understood their, uh, their description of it. It is, it is beyond belief. But listen to what Paul wrote and just remind ourselves of what he wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, where he said, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. But they are born that way, and therefore there's nothing that can be changed about it. That's the contention. But read on in what the Apostle Paul writes. And such were some of you. Such were some of you. But you were what? Washed. That's baptism. You were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Please tell me that the God of heaven would create someone in effect that way that they cannot do anything about and then through his holy word condemn the practice itself if he himself was responsible for creating them that way and that there's absolutely nothing that can be done about it. That will not follow. No, if the Apostle Paul said it's a sin from which you can turn, then it is something you're not born with. It is something that you have begun to practice, and it may be extremely ingrained, it may be habitual, it may be long-standing, 
It may be so long-standing, whatever the sin is, that one may actually convince himself that this is just the way I am, I've always been this way, and I cannot change, and God doesn't expect me to change. No, such were some of you, settles it. But you were washed. In other words, you repented, you were baptized into Christ, and you changed your ways. Therefore, one is capable of coming away from the sin of homosexuality and from any other sin, for that matter. And as we have often said on the TV program, and we repeated it again the other night when we dealt with this subject, it has to be understood that because we love the sinner, we must hate the sin. And if we do not hate the sin, we do not love the sinner. And yet the world today in which we live that has been completely engulfed and consumed, as it were, almost by political correctness and by the so-called tolerance uh, mentality would tell us that the most unloving thing you could ever do is to tell someone who is involved in homosexuality or any sin, pretty much for that matter, that that person is involved in sin, that that is unloving. No, the unloving thing is to overlook or tolerate sin. That's the unloving thing. And so when we point out sin, whatever it is, we must do it in a loving way. We must do it in a compassionate way. But we must do it. And we must do it even if we reach a point where someone tells me, you can no longer stand here and do it. Then we cannot shun to declare the whole counsel of God. We need to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves and not unnecessarily bring upon ourselves uh, persecution. But when we are wise as serpents and harmless as doves and persecution comes, then we must use the Scriptures to encourage us in that persecution just as the Scriptures encouraged those in the first century in their persecution, many of whom were persecuted beyond what any of us have ever seen or hopefully will see in our lifetime. But it is a tragedy indeed to see what is happening in this country, in this world, when it comes to the endorsement and the advancement of that which is an abomination to God and is clearly depicted as such in Scripture. The most loving thing we can do is to try to help people to see that rather than excusing their behavior, they must repent of that behavior and change. And we are going to see that even the most barbaric, even the most paganistic are subject of the, to the gospel and certainly have the opportunity. And Paul believed, as he wrote this epistle, that they ought to hear the gospel. You'll see what I mean when we come to some other verses in our study tonight. Put to death, put to death, not on the back burner, but put to death your members which are on the earth. Fornication, uncleanness, passion, and then not just desire, but notice he says evil desire. Uh, desire is not sin necessarily, is it? I can desire certain things that are good. In fact, I should desire things that are good. I desire to go to heaven, don't you? That's a good desire. So obviously, evil desire of every kind, whether it is associated with the sins of the flesh, the, the sexual uh, sins that are mentioned prior to it, but evil desire 
of every kind. And then he says, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Now, that's an interesting way to put it, isn't it? And it's not the only time that we find the Apostle Paul using that term, covetousness, as idolatry. You find it in the uh, Ephesian letter uh, at chapter 5 of Ephesians. He talks about uh, the covetousness, a covetous man. In Ephesians chapter 5, beginning there at uh, verse 5, he says, For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So a covetous man is an idolater. And what that tells us is that I don't have to have some golden calf uh, down front here or some other such image and fall down before it to be characterized in Scripture as an idolater. I am an idolater if I am covetous, meaning what? If I allow my desire for the things of this world, for anything or things of this world, to consume me, to cause uh, me to replace the Savior in my heart with those desires of my heart that are material desires, then I've become an idolater. And I don't have to be a rich man to be an idolater in terms of coveting those things that are material. I can be as poor as Job's turkey, as the old expression goes, but if my desire is, and I'm consumed with that desire to be rich, and I covet what everybody else has, and resent what they have, and will do anything I can to get what they have, I'm in a lot of trouble spiritually. I am an idolater. I'm an idolater. Now, there were idolaters in Scripture, obviously, who did fall down before golden calves and many other such mindless and lifeless uh, creations of man, and that was uh, idolatry in its... Uh, uh, incipient form, you would say, but covetousness, Paul says on two occasions, is idolatry. That needs to sober our thinking so that we make sure that we never let the things of this world take precedence over the things of the next world. It gets us back to the early part of this third chapter of Colossians, doesn't it? Set your mind on things above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. And then he says, and if we needed our thinking sobered any more than it already has been by reading these words, look at the, um, at the next verse when he says, verse 6, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. Because of the very things he has mentioned and others that are not mentioned in the list, the wrath of God is coming upon whom? The sons of disobedience. Who is that? Everyone who is disobedient. Everyone who's out here in the world who is not in Christ, even those who come into Christ who've allowed the world to, uh, to come back into their lives to the extent that they are no longer really faithful servants of God and Christ, that wrath of God is coming. Does that mean a temper tantrum? Is that what he means by the wrath of God, that God is going to exhibit some sort of burst of temper? No, it means the judicious wrath of God, the justice of God. That aspect of God's nature that so many in today's world Ignore completely. That's the aspect of God's nature that is stressed here. God is a God of love. God is a God of mercy. But God is a just God. And His just nature demands that He recognize sin and that He punish sin. And that He bring sin to a reckoning point at the judgment, which He will do. 
You know, we've said before that there are those who say, well, I can't picture a loving God sending anyone to hell, and we quickly respond, a loving God doesn't send anyone to hell. The God of heaven doesn't send anyone to hell. People send themselves there based upon their lives here. But the justice of God allows for that because the justice of God is just as perfect as his love and as perfect as every other aspect of his being, including his mercy. The wrath of God, the judicial wrath of God, is coming upon the sons of disobedience. And then he reminds them, you were among those sons of disobedience. That's what he tells the Colossians next. Look at it. He says, in which you yourselves also or once walked when you lived in them. If anyone tells you you can't live in sin, show him this verse. Because this verse says you can live in sin. You can live in sin. Because that's what he tells the Colossians they had once done. They had lived in sin. You had lived in these very things. And you know, in Paul's time at places like Corinth and other places, religious prostitution was rampant. There were parents, I have read, who would actually train their daughters, bring their daughters up to become religious prostitutes. That's what they wanted for their daughters. You know, we want what is best for our children. But in that day and time, there were those who thought that was truly the best thing a daughter could do with her life was to become a religious prostitute. Because it was believed that in the sexual practices that were part of that pagan religion, that you actually, in that process, drew closer to the pagan deity, to that God, by committing the sexual acts. And so therefore a parent would say, I'm going to dedicate my daughter to bringing people closer to Baal, the false god Baal, or some other deity. Oh, what a perverted and pagan view. And yet, that was the case with many of them. They walked and lived in those sins. But you know something? The next two words are two of the greatest words you'll find in Scripture. But now. But now. They really ought to be two of the greatest words in the lives of every child of God here tonight. But now. Because you realize that every single one of us was in sin before we became Christians. Sin separates from God, whether it's the sins in this list we've just gone over or any sin, it separates from God. And I've got to have something, I've got to have someone who can change that, who can change the then to a but now. And that someone is Jesus Christ. And for every faithful child of God, those two words, but now, really mean something. Because we were lost, we were without hope, but now, but now, we are in Christ. In the Ephesian letter at chapter 2, those two words are used in the context to show where those Ephesians had been in the world, but now, they were in Christ. Well, here, the two words, but now, are given by Paul to remind these Christians and thus Christians for all time to come as to what we are to completely put off specifically, going into a greater list here, 
put to death the members. We've already talked about those, but now he uses the figure of clothing. And for the next several verses, the clothing figure is used to talk about the clothes we should put off. And then beginning in verse 12, which we will look at, Lord willing, next time, he talks about as the elect of God, those who are Christians, what we should put on. And so it's a clothing figure here. As I was looking at these verses again, I thought about mud rooms in houses. You know, some houses have mud rooms uh, where, you know, if the husband's out working in the yard or the kids are out playing and they come in and they're just filthy and got mud and dirt all over them, well, the mother just welcomes them into the home right away and says, go there and have a seat on the good couch for a while, and then later on, I'll need you to clean up. <laughs> no, with the child, it's what? Get those clothes off of you. Don't you take another step into this house until you ditch those clothes. Get them off. Get them off. Well, that's the idea here. The idea here is get off this clothing. Put it away and put on other things that we'll look at, as we said, beginning in verse 12 next time. Well, what is it that we're to put off? But now you yourselves are to put off all these. Now, what are they? Look at them. Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds. So we'll stop right there. But now you yourselves are to put off all these. Anger. The word here indicates kind of a slow-seething uh, anger attitude. Uh, just someone who basically looks like he has been weaned on a sour pickle and uh, is, uh, is just an angry individual. Have you ever known anybody like that that just seems to be kind of just angry? Uh, it's that kind of anger. But then we move to wrath, and you can really see a progression here in this list, really based on the words. Wrath is the word from which we get our word thermos. Uh, thumos here, and it means it means an outburst of, of anger here. So that slow seething anger can lead to what? You let that slow seething anger live long enough and eventually it's going gonna, it's gonna to explode. And so that wrath. And then, and then malice. That's that bitterness or hatred towards someone that you are just, now you've reached a point where you just really want to do somebody some harm in in whatever way, whether it's bodily harm, maybe not that, but uh, a malicious kind of thing. That's a word from which we get malicious, obviously, malice. Blasphemy, speaking against them. Speaking against God, obviously, would be uh, included. And then doing it, perhaps, with the kind of language that should not ever cross the lips of one who claims to be a child of God, and that's filthy language. Cursing. And so there seems to be kind of a progression here in the list. And then he adds lying to the list. He says, do not lie to one another. Since what? Since you have put off the old man with his deeds. Implication is, those who haven't put off the old man, they, they can and probably will at some point lie to you. But someone who has truly understood what it means to become a Christian is not going to lie. He is not going to in any way deceive his fellow man but he's going to go the second mile to make sure that he's never guilty of such. Why? Because you've put off the old man with his deeds. And notice this, and have put on the new man who is renewed, but notice how. Who is renewed in what? 
in the Holy Spirit who moves and, and gives you this wonderful feeling. No. The new man who is renewed in what? What's the word? Knowledge. Knowledge. That's how we're renewed, is in knowledge. Now let me ask you, where did you get the knowledge that enabled you to know what to do to put off the old man by putting on Christ, where did you get that knowledge? You got it not from a better felt than told experience. You didn't get a still small voice in the night that told you what to do, did you? You got it right here in the all-sufficient, all-powerful Word of God. That's where the knowledge is. And the word knowledge here, incidentally, is the word that means precise knowledge. And that's what we should strive for. Precise knowledge. In other words, not being able to differentiate only between good and bad, but between better and best. Between better and best. And to make absolutely sure that I conduct myself in a way that I know is going to be pleasing to God. If that means going the second mile to make sure I don't engage in something that's questionable, then that's what I need to do. That's what I need to do. Renewed in knowledge, but notice this, according to the image of him who created him. Well, I know that God created us through Jesus Christ, the physical creation, Adam and Eve. But I, I strongly suspect that the creation to which Paul refers to here, though he may have had the physical creation in mind, I suspect he had in mind perhaps more the spiritual creation. And especially when you look at his Ephesian epistle, because there are so many similarities between Colossians and Ephesians. But when you go back to Ephesians chapter 2, for example, and you look at, uh, at uh, verse 10 of Ephesians 2, after in verses 8 and 9 he said, But by grace you are uh, saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should uh, boast. Then he says what? For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Created in Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says what? If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So in Paul's writings, in 2 Corinthians 5.17 and Ephesians 2.10, he speaks of that spiritual creation. And that leads me to believe that that may have been uppermost in his mind here as he was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write that you are transformed into the image, the image of him who created you, that is, created you in Christ Jesus. God did that through Christ. But the spiritual creation, the spiritual creation, and you're transforming regularly and continually into the image of God. You're becoming more godlike every day. Now, I know there's a false religion that tells us we can become gods. I'm not talking about that. Uh, we're not going to become deity. But we are nonetheless to be godlike, aren't we? In the sense that we emulate God. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Matthew 5, 48. There's our perfect standard, and we're to strive for that standard, that image, the image of Christ. We're to emulate that image. We are to 
look into the mirror, as it were, as James calls it, of God's Word, see what is there and conform ourselves to that image more and more every day that we live. Those of you in this audience tonight who are Christians and have been for years should be more like that image than you were yesterday or years ago especially if we're feeding as we should and growing as we should. Let me call your attention to another passage that is similar in thought from the same writer. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. Where do we behold the glory of the Lord? Here's the mirror in which, into which we look to behold the glory of the Lord. Beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are what? are being transformed, continual process. We're continuing to be transformed into what? Into the same image, the image that we see here. That's the image we're becoming more and more like every day, or are we? We can, we will, if we're looking into the mirror. And I don't mean glancing every now and then. I mean gazing into that mirror with regularity and with intensity. And I'm told the mirrors way back when you had to look into them pretty intently to get a, much of a view of yourself because they weren't like today's mirrors. They weren't of that quality. Gaze into it intently. Beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory, the glorious Christian life now, to the ultimate glory of heaven. From glory to glory. Notice this. Just as by the Spirit of the Lord. It is by the Spirit of the Lord, yeah, the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit as He is what? As He has given us the Word. That's what transforms us into that image of Christ where we're more like Him, more like God every day. And what an exciting transformation process that is. And yet, tragically, many in the Lord's church do not even undertake that transformation process as they should. And they become content with a casual glance into the mirror from time to time rather than that intent gaze. Let's make sure we're not among those. Because the real joy and the ultimate glory comes from intently gazing into that mirror. Then quickly he says what? He says... Renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. And then verse 11, our final verse, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. What a wonderful statement. Neither Greek nor Jew. Where? In Christ. Where we are as that new man being transformed, renewed in knowledge, Becoming more Christ-like. In Christ there is neither Jew, neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian or Scythian. Barbarians were those the Greeks viewed as anyone who wasn't a Greek. If you were not Greek, you were barbarian. If you didn't speak the Greek language, you were a barbarian because that's how they viewed all others other than Greeks. And Scythian is pretty close to barbarian. The Scythians, and this is the only place this is used, Scythians were those uh, believed to inhabit the uh, uh, area north of the Caspian and the Black Seas, and they were supposedly some of the most barbaric of the pagans. 
But notice, as we mentioned earlier, how Paul says what? The gospel is for even the Scythians, even those who were viewed as the most barbaric. The gospel is for them. And if they'll come away from those barbaric ways and they'll come into Christ, they are equal partakers of the blessings of Christ along with everybody else. And that simply reminds us that in Christ there is no caste system. There is no class system. There are different roles and different functions, obviously, but we are all equal partakers of the wonderful blessings of Christ together. All of us. Where Christ is what? A big part of my life. No. Where Christ is all. Christ is all. And in all. We've just sung it, haven't we, Bobby? He is my everything. He is my all. Did you sing along? I certainly hope you did. And I hope you sang along with conviction that he is your everything, that he is your all. But you know, you can't sing that, can't say that, if you haven't expressed your faith in Jesus as the Christ, repented of your sins, confessed him, to be the Christ and been buried with him in baptism for the remission of your sins. And if you haven't done that, we plead with you to do that this very night that you might be buried with him in baptism, raised with him to walk in newness of life to seek those things which are above where Christ is, even now sitting at the right hand of God, waiting to be your mediator and your high priest, waiting first of all to be your Savior. And if you need to come home to him in repentance and confession of sin as a wayward child of God, we plead with you to do that now as we stand and sing to encourage you.